Today's show is brought to you by Audible. Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook with a 30-day trial membership. If you've never been an Audible customer and want to see what they offer, just go to www.audibletrial.com slash Excelsior Journeys and browse the unmatched selection of audio programs, download a title for free, and start listening. It's that easy. Why Audible? Audible content includes an unmatched selection of audiobooks, original audio shows, news, comedy, and more from the leading audiobook publishers, broadcasters, and entertainers. And with this free 30-day trial, you'll have your pick of it all. You can hear books of all genres narrated by Jim Dale, Stephen Fry, Will Patton, Alex Hyde-White, Jeff Brick, Neil Shaw, William Demerit, and even a few by me, George Soroy. So go to www.audibletrial.com slash Excelsior Journeys and start your own 30-day journey with Audible today. Hey, this is John Lee Dumas of the award-winning podcast, Entrepreneurs on Fire, and you're listening to the Excelsior Journeys with George Soroy. Prepare to ignite. Is there a burning desire within to share your creativity with the rest of the world? Do you insist on pursuing your passion by any means necessary? Then you are on an Excelsior journey, and you are not alone. Welcome back to Excelsior Journeys. My name is George Soroy. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for listening to the show. It is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, and its home base, Podbean. Wherever you listen to uh, your podcast, please like, please subscribe, please, uh, please go ahead and review. All of the uh, feedback really means the world to us. Um, and I am really thrilled to, uh, to be able to speak with, uh, with our guest this week because not only do I get to, um, to be a full-on fanboy, but I also get to uh, let you know that he has a tremendous book out that really details his whole journey in voice. Uh, my guest this week is, uh, is actor Neil Ross, and he, is, he, has a, uh, he has a book out right now called Vocal Recall. It's available on uh, both ebook and audiobook that, of course, he narrated himself. And it tells this decade, wonderful decades-long story of all, the, all of his, uh, his experience with voice acting and everything that's come after that. It's been just a, it's a wonderful listen. Um, that, and I really, really hope that all of you pick it up. And what's really special for me is not only... Uh, Neil's connection with Transformers the movie and as you as you all know just a couple of months ago I got to talk with Flint Dilly who also has the same connection and it's been just so you got to hear me fanboy a lot you know like there you'll hear some of it again this week and um, but also one of the things that really that I really appreciated when I was uh, listening to Vocal Recall is Neil's journey basically kind of you know shadowed so much of what I have always wanted to do and all the things that I was interested in. All the different shows that he was involved in are things that I would watch when I was a kid. Voltron, G.I. Joe, Transformers, Visionaries, and you know, so many other ones you know, before and after. And getting involved with, uh, with, different, mo- you know, with different movies. Uh, you'll, have, you'll have heard his voice on Back to the Future Part 2. You'll have heard it on Quiz Show, which if, if I'm not mistaken was the only Best Picture nominee from 94 that I saw twice in the theaters. 
um, and also his experience in radio and everything after that. It's all stuff that I was always really interested in. So this was a wonderful listen for me. And it's going to be a really great, uh, great chat with him this week. It is my honor and privilege to introduce to you, Neil Ross. Neil, how are you, sir? I'm good, George. Uh, thank you so much for having me. And uh, hello to everybody out there in Podland, yes. which I guess is the world, potentially, right? Absolutely. I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> I, hope, I definitely hope so. The more people that, that, are, that are hearing this, the better. And I really hope that, uh, that there, is, there are a lot, of, uh, a lot of people that are aspiring voice actors that, that want to take this journey themselves I, I have they, a question. Is there anybody at this point who isn't an aspiring voice actor? Because <laughs> I'd like to meet them. Oh, yeah. yeah <laughs> I don't know who they are or where they are. They must be somewhere, but that I is, never That is it. true. If they're yeah. not podcasting, then they're, you know, they're trying to, then they're, you know, reading their audiobooks or, or whatever. You know, the, the world has really uh, opened up a lot of, uh, a lot of possibilities. And, um, and I've also noticed that a lot of people are, are using are utilizing Zoom as a result of everything that's going on with COVID. How are you doing over there in California? Well, I speaking personally, I, I'm fine. Uh, we got a nice place with a view, and uh, I'm oddly enough for someone who's in sort of in showbiz, I'm kind of a, an introvert. So some days it's I, I wake up and I go, oh, I don't have to go anywhere or meet anybody. This is great, you know? <laughs> which I realize most people don't think that way and that it's tough. But anyway, I live in a state that's basically one big bonfire, but not around where we are, fortunately. Thankfully. But my Thankfully. heart goes out to everybody in California and Oregon. They're getting nailed badly as we speak. And um, in fact, I had a friend who lived in a, tiny, a small town called Talent in Oregon. And I just read in the paper today, it's basically gone. Uh, he's not there anymore. And he's, in fact, he's not anywhere anymore. But I just happened to be aware of that little town because he lived there for a while. And it's gone, according to the newspaper. And it's just tragic. Yeah, my, my heart goes out to everyone who's been dealing with this and everyone who's been affected by everything that's been happening. 2020 is... Yeah. <laughs> this, this is not one that's going to go down in the... Uh, Annals is a great one. I'm looking forward I, to the hindsight that they always, you know, yeah. talk about 2020. So, you know, that's yeah, uh, yeah. We'll have a lot of hindsight. I have no doubt. I just uh, my heart goes out to young people. You know, I thought, boy, if something like this had happened when you were 18, 19 years old, you'd have gone out of your mind. Yeah, Those kids want to get out and do stuff and meet and hang out and have fun and you know, no, just sit there for a year. Maybe, right. or maybe longer. Uh, yeah. Aside from all the economic chaos and all the rest of it, it's got to be horrible to be a young person at the moment. Yeah. And uh, before, before, we, uh, before we talk a little bit about uh, vocal recall, um, one of the things that I'm always curious about is, uh, you know, when, when we get eventually get back to some sort of normalcy when all this is said and done, um, obviously, it's not going to go back to exactly the way it was before. But have there been things that you've uh, been able to kind of pick up during this time that you've uh, during COVID that you were able to kind of um, realize that, you know, like, hey, this is actually something good for me to do from now on. So I've noticed that uh, apparently my wife is uh, is pretty good um, at cutting my hair. <laughs> so, so I'm 
I'm happy that uh, that I can say that you know, like okay, you know, like I'm I'm good with that. I can go ahead and uh, you know, I'm very I'm very simple when it comes to my styles of choice. So she can definitely pull that off. So um, that'll save me a you know a couple you know a few twenties you know throughout uh, in the coming months. Well, I'm I've decided to uh, like they said back in the day, let my freak flag fly, and I just haven't uh, got tried to cut my own hair, or asked anybody else to do it. I, you know. Maybe I'll finally have that groovy hippie look that I was never able to master when that stuff was actually going on. <laughs> you know, maybe now I can pull it off. I don't know. Yeah. So tell us but, a little uh, bit. Yeah, the, 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 well, it, it's a sort of continuation of this love-hate thing I've had with, with uh, Los Angeles traffic. Mm-hmm. Actually, it's all hate. Uh, <laughs> I have a home studio and I, I enjoy working there because I don't have to get in the car and stare at some guy's bumper for two hours. Right. But uh, then people will say, well, how, you know, how, how are some of the other guys? How's Welker? How's Peter Cullen? And I'll go, as far as I know, they're okay. I haven't seen them in ages. Yeah. On, the, on the rare occasions when you are called in somewhere, in the old days, you'd walk in and there's like 50 actors and everybody's laughing and scratching and carrying on because they're going to a great party. Now yep. you walk into the waiting room and it's, you know, you hear crickets chirping and wind blowing and tumbleweeds rolling and there's nobody there. And uh, so I, I miss, uh, you know, hanging out with the voiceover community. On the other hand, I don't miss the traffic. And it seems to me that people are figuring out, uh, gee, we don't actually have to drag these actors into a studio. We, they can kind of do it from home and I can do it from home and uh, yeah. and you're thinking well as, uh, I, I personally don't think there's going to be this glorious day when heavenly choirs uh, sound out and, and Dr. Fauci says alright it's we've got the vaccine line up I have right. a feeling this is going to end slowly and incrementally in some strange way but yeah. when we do if we ever do get back to whatever passes for normal I wonder how much of this will stay in place how many people will say okay back to the studio, everybody in person, or if they'll say, hey, this works, we yeah. don't even need to go back. The hell with it. Let's just keep doing it this way. And, and only time will tell. I, yeah, I'm, I'm wondering the same sort of thing. So um, with, um, so considering that, uh, you know, you have the, stu- you know, the studio set up at home, do you have like, uh, was it ISDN? So that way you can communicate with the, with the uh, director? Yes, I have ISDN. I also have a nifty little thing called IPDTL, which is not that well known, unfortunately. It, it originated in England, uh, and it stands for Internet Protocol Down the Line, and it works really well. Uh, I, I, there's also something out there you're probably familiar with it called Source Connect, which I have yes. not signed up with yet. I may have to do that at some point. I don't know. Yeah, it's mostly IPDTL and ISDN, all these, all these <laughs> letters. I, I, to this day, I've owned an ISDN box since the early 2000s. I still don't know what ISDN stands for. <laughs> I, re- I remember hearing uh, when I was first really getting into podcasting, the, the, the phrase RSS feed. And I was like, oh, okay, what's, I don't know what that means. And then I looked it up, really simple syndication. I was like, really? That's hmm. <laughs> it. Well, for people who, who maybe are not familiar with it, ISDN is, um, think of it as a fax machine for audio. Mm-hmm. 
it takes the the analog uh, voice track, converts it into digits, shoots it out over a phone line, and then at the the person at the other end has to have an ISDN box. It takes those digits and translates them back into the human voice, and it, or music or whatever you're feeding down the, into the analog microphones, and and it happens in a split second. It's amazing, amazing okay. technology, but it's now kind of outdated. Yeah, yeah, but uh, but at the same time, I'm sure it's it's definitely um, it's it's always good to have that sort of extra line that's dedicated to just that, so that way nothing yeah. else is nothing else is coming up the works. Right. So um, so let's talk a little bit about vocal recall itself because this is something that I really want as many people as possible to get. Um, what was it that uh, that inspired you to real to just finally sit down and start telling your story? Because you got one hell of a story. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I sort of uh, stumbled into it. I did a, a live appearance. You probably uh, know this guy, Rob Paulson, best known, yes. I guess, for the Animaniacs and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. He does a podcast called Talkin' Tunes. And Highly recommend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Occasionally he takes it on the road, and he was doing a show at the Improv in Los Angeles and uh, asked uh, several of us who'd done Transformers to come and do a night on Transformers. I remember that episode. That was fabulous. That was so much yeah, fun. Yeah, I had a wonderful, I was, I, I, there was a lot of trepidation because I mean, the improv is a legendary comedy venue and I am not a stand-up comedian. Don't pretend to be one. And I thought, what the hell am I going to do there? But I went. And of course, the place was packed with Transformers fans and Rob is a wonderful host and he asked us questions and we answered and we got, you know, a lot of laughs and applause. And I thought, God, that was fun. Maybe I could do that on my own. Maybe if I wrote a little monologue, I could do the monologue and then I could take questions from the audience. So I start to write a monologue. Mm -hmm. And as you can tell, things got out of hand. <laughs> At a certain point, I realized this is either the world's longest monologue or the world's shortest book. Mm -hmm. And I, I never thought I could write a book. I, I just would have sworn I could not write a book. But I, I sort of played uh, mental games with myself. I would say, you're not writing a book. You're just writing this chapter. And that mm -hmm. may be all that happens. Yeah. And I'd write that chapter, and then I'd get an idea for another chapter. Well, all right, then go ahead and write that chapter. Not writing a book, just writing right. a chapter. Yep. And eventually, I reached a point where I realized, if I keep going, I have a book. And I, so I kept going. So, <clears throat> you know, if somebody had sat me down and, and said, I need you to write a book about your life, I would have said, ah, get somebody else. I'm, I'm not up to the task. But I sort of conned myself into doing it. Well, and I'm, I, I'm glad because I, I, <laughs> I bought into that con, you know, quite a bit. So, and, uh, and yeah, it's, it's a really, you know, and I opted for the audiobook. So I got to, you know, I, I felt like it was only right for, for a voice actor to tell me his story. So uh, that, that, that's definitely uh, just a, a terrific listen. It's something that I highly recommend to all of my listeners. By all means, go to Amazon, get it, enjoy it, love it, own it, you know, like, and, and, and thank me later. Um, so, so let's talk about the, uh, the very beginning of all this. So basically, you know, what we have here is an opportunity to kind of tell the monologue version of what will you know of what vocal recall really is obviously we don't have to go into all the details we don't want to do too many spoilers or anything because we want people to obviously pick it up but what was 
that moment for you? I always call it like the lightning bolt moment. What was it for you that made you kind of point in the direction of voice acting, radio, you know, getting your voice out there and just said like, that's what I want to do. That's the kind of life I want to be. And that's, those, that's, that's what I want to be. What was that moment for you that made you want to go in that direction? Well, the initial thing that I did was radio mm-hmm. and I did radio for about 20 years and roughly halfway into the mission, I discovered this thing called voiceover existed. This uh, happened in, I think, 1970. And at that time, nobody knew this business existed. It was a complete uh, mystery. And there were a relative handful of people doing it. It was this, this little hidden niche of show business that nobody seemed to know about. But initially, I wanted to be a radio disc jockey. And that came about because I discovered rock and roll music, wanted to hear more. The only source at that point was radio stations, began to listen to radio stations, eventually began to lose interest in the music. It was that fallow period between Elvis and uh, Buddy Holly and the Beatles. There was a weird three or four year period where nothing, once in a while, a good record would come out, but a lot of it was just crap. Right. But I kept listening and I began to focus on what happened in between the records, the guys, it was all guys then, almost entirely guys. I think I heard one female disc jockey my whole, uh, during that period. Anyway, listening to what they did, uh, the, the way they got their personalities across, the stuff that happened, the time checks, the commercials, the weather forecast, the this, the that. And I began to become interested in radio. And I had one guy that I listened to uh, a lot, his, and I really worshipped him. He was a very clever man. His name was Bill Balance. Mm-hmm. And I think if uh, the technology of the time had been up to it, he would have become nationally famous because he invented a show called The Feminine Forum. He would only take calls from women. Wow. It would mostly be about their personal lives. And he was so intelligent and charming that he would... It would be naughty, but it wouldn't be obscene. It wouldn't be creepy. It would just be naughty and kind of funny. And he was so damn good at it, but they didn't have the satellite technology to where they could, you know, spew this out to six, 800 radio stations around the country. It just wasn't feasible. So people tried to copy what he was doing and imitators sprang up and they didn't have his class or talent and eventually the FCC cracked down and put a stop to all of it. Anyway, this was before he got into the feminine forum. He was a disc jockey, very clever guy. So I'm listening to him one night about 1130 and he goes into this rap about, hey, uh, when I get off the air, I'm going to jump in my brand new sports car, convertible sports car. I'm going to pick up my starlet girlfriend who's under contract with Warner Brothers and we are going to cruise the strip. And I'm lying in bed in Ocean Beach, 120 miles south of Bill. And I'm thinking, my God, what a life he's having. I'd love to have a life like that. Yeah. And then the little light bulb went off, uh, off on top of my head. And it's, well, you are kind of, you tell jokes in the lunch court. People kind of congregate around to hear these jokes you seem to be able to tell. And you're kind of personable and whatnot. Uh, geez, maybe you could pull this off somehow, get in this business. I mean, why not? Mm-hmm. And that was, that, was, that's, that was the spark. And a whole lot of stuff happened, and we can talk about it or not. But eventually, I did get on the radio and was there for another 20 years. 
began to become disenchanted with it, began to become curious about the people I heard voicing television commercials, voicing radio commercials that came in from the big ad agencies in New York and Los Angeles, wondered who the people were who narrated some of the documentaries I would watch. Yeah. Wondered who these pe- who are these people? It became a Seinfeld bit. <laughs> and I had this working theory, well, maybe they're on camera actors just picking up a couple of bucks on the side. And then in 1970, in a conversation with a record promoter, mm-hmm. he uttered the term voiceovers. And I said, what's, I'd never heard it before. And I said, what's voiceovers? He said, oh, you know, commercials, promos, cartoons, voiceovers. I said, mm-hmm. That's a business? Yeah, guys make a ton of money doing that. Just that's all they do. And I thought, my God, if I sat down and thought, tried to think of a job that would be perfect for someone like me, mm-hmm. uh, I couldn't come up with anything better. And at that point, I said, I got to get in this voiceover thing. And it took me another 10 years to do anything about it. But eventually, somewhere in the early 80s, I managed to claw my way into the business. <laughs> and I so haven't what- had a real job since. <laughs> So what, so you, you were saying that you were kind of like disenchanted with radio. Was there something about it that made you just like kind of tune out of it? You know? Well, it was a lot of things. Um, you, you know, the illusion, uh, if you're out there listening, is, oh, he's on the air. He's saying anything he wants and doing anything he wants, playing any record he wants. He's having so much fun. The truth is he's got bosses and memos and, there's a there was a thing in in radio studios called the hotline mm-hmm. and usually the only one who had the number was the program director or if you had a national program director he would know the number and when that thing rang you know oh god i'm going to get my ass chewed and you pick it up <laughs> why did you do the weather then you should have done that you know they they, they, they you'd, you'd think that, that you killed somebody they'd get so angry right and it it just there were a lot of uh, a lot of uh, reasons that I just, I, I eventually it ceased to be, you know, the, one of the things I tell people is I'm very fortunate in that I spent most of my adult life doing a job that I loved, that I would have done for free, you know, yeah. if I couldn't do it for money. And the the sad thing is the last few years that I was in the radio business, it wasn't fun anymore. It, it, it turned into a job, a chore, a, a thing I wished was over. And, yeah. uh, that's why I had to get out and get into voiceovers. I've never had that feeling in voiceovers. I mean, you get in certain sessions where the director's uh, being an idiot and you think, oh, Lord, how much more of this? And then you go, come on, at this point, you're being paid on an hourly basis like a CEO. Just suck right. it up and do whatever they ask. Come on. Yeah. And that's what got me through it. But nine, 99 times out of 100, I'm having a ball when I do voiceovers. And, uh, nice. You know, so most you, people trudge to work and live for the weekends. I, I live to, to do the work. So that's the dream. That's yeah, what you know, yeah. we all, that's what we all want to do. We all want to have something that's going to make us want to get out of bed in the morning and not just have to, you know, just say that like, Oh, you know, this paycheck that, you know, it's coming at, after two mm-hmm. weeks, that's going to get me up. Um, but that's, that's wonderful to be able to be in a field that you, you know, that you love so much that you just can't wait to face what, you know, like what you have coming up for you that, you know, that, that morning, like that's, that's fantastic. Um, so what, uh, so you, so you wanted to, you're in, you've, you know, had your experience with radio, but then all of a sudden you're looking at voiceover. Did you have to 
did you have to take lessons to try to alter your delivery or something to adapt to voiceover? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I, I should I should backtrack and say that I always was sort of fascinated with voices and accents. And I used to experiment in my room when I was a kid trying to reproduce stuff that I heard on radio. So doing little silly cartoony voices is something I I just did spontaneously from the age of five on up. Yeah. And uh, I never got a chance to utilize that very much in radio, but um, we I did get involved in doing a radio comedy series in San Diego shortly before I went up to Los Angeles. <clears throat> and I think when I got to LA, based on a conversation I had with an agent at the time, I was ready to do animation when I got to town. Yeah. Uh, I mean, obviously I needed to learn things, I could improve, but I had the basics at that mm -hmm. point for animation. But for straight announcing, for spokesperson, this kind of thing, no, I was completely wrong because I had picked up a ton of bad habits in the radio business. Right. Uh, because it's, it's a diff, sort of a different animal. There used to be a lot of live copy in radio. Sometimes you'd read three 60 second spots back to back. Yeah. Live on the air. They, eventually they stopped doing it because people, a new breed of DJ came in who was not as well educated and they couldn't read, you know? Right. They would make so many mistakes. They said, I'll pre-record everything, which I, you know, I used to love doing live 60s because you could get your personality across that way. Yeah. Anyway, uh, but there is a sort of a radio read that we all perfected and the uh, renowned voice actor Dawes Butler uh, uh, had the perfect term for it. He called it the cosmetic read. It's very professional and sounds very slick and no mistakes are made, but there is absolutely no sincerity to this read. <laughs> You know, regardless of what I'm reading, the subtext is I'm just the announcer. I have no idea if anything I'm saying is true or not, but I'm saying it anyway because I'm the announcer. But if you go down there and get screwed, don't call me because I'm only the announcer. And this is the last thing that the ad agency people wanted. In fact, it's the first pieces of copy I would see that came from ad agencies all said the same thing at the bottom, and they probably do to this very day, is not an announcer. Mm -hmm. They want a spokesperson, someone who sounds like they have intimate involvement when whatever is being presented. Yeah. And I had to unlearn all this slick style and somehow figure out how to sound like an actual human being talking to other human beings or another human being. Somehow magically make the microphone and the transmitter and all the rest of it disappear and uh, and sound real mm -hmm. and so i had to go to workshops to do that and we did all sorts of acting exercises um i worked with a guy named <clears throat> i took a, a workshop from a guy named brian cummings a wonderful guy still around mm -hmm. and uh, he had picked something up in an acting class and and we we would say all right read this piece of copy but read it as though you're telling this to your neighbor across the fence and right. picture what the fence looks like and what does his yard look like? What kind of flowers does he have in the yard? You know, and it all sounds so damn dumb, but you know, we were struggling to try to find the truth of the material. Yeah. And um, then I stumbled across a technique that any good actor is very familiar with. I, I began to try to invent a backstory that led me up to the moment where I said what was on the piece of paper. 
much as an actor will do uh, in preparing for a role where they will essentially sit down and invent a backstory for their character that takes them all the way from birth to the point where they open the door in, in, in their first scene in the movie or the play. Yeah. It's, to give, it's, to, it's to give the character some kind of a spine, something they can, uh, that tethers them to the character. It can be gossamer thin, but you have to have some sort of connection to the character. So I would, you know, most people would come into an audition and look at a piece of copy and say, oh, okay, I'll pause here, I'll pause there. Are there any words I can't pronounce? No? Okay, I'm ready. And I'd be over in the corner going, all right, uh, 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 I was in the Air Force, and then uh, I had to get out of the Air Force. <laughs> Try to invent a story. How effective any of this was, I don't know. You just suddenly, little by little, painfully, incrementally, one day you suddenly realize, I'm not doing that radio read anymore. Yeah. I may not be booking this particular job, but this is, I've, I've kind of got a technique now, mm -hmm. you know? And so, yeah, I did a lot of that, a lot of that. So, um, so you had the training and you were able to get yourself into like a really good, good place where you can get behind the mic and everything and doing the, doing some actual like voiceover work. What was it like that first time when you were, behind the microphone in this whole other realm well it's uh, it's quite terrifying um you know radio you always work alone mm -hmm. uh whether you're live as a dj or if you're in the production studio creating a commercial you're alone yeah and you can do it as many times as you want and if you screw up you just rewind the tape and start again and suddenly you're in this room with a microphone dangling in front of you and a copy stand and you have no control over anything. Mm -hmm. And at the other end of the room is a window with these faces looking at you and then occasionally, uh, now Neil, could you, uh, you know, and suddenly you're being judged. Mm -hmm. And the first few times I did it, I was, I, it's so intimidating. I can't explain it. But it happens to I, almost everyone who tries to do this stuff. You know, you're fine in your little home studio, but then you show up somewhere and, well, this is Bob and this is Steve. She wrote the copy of the years. Oh, yeah, this is the engineer, Dave. All right, go out in there and wow us. And you sit there and you look through the window and they're looking at you. <laughs> and, you know, uh, you, you just, you, you kind of have to, the only way to get used to it is just to do it. I was in a, a wonderful workshop. I did a number of workshops, but this last one was really great. We had no official leader. We all had an assignment to go out and get somebody who would come in on Thursday nights when we did this and direct us. Mm. And so every week I would have to read for a total stranger. And it, God, that was helpful because by the time we, that workshop broke up, I was fairly okay with meeting a total stranger and shaking hands and going in the booths and performing for him or her. Yeah. Uh, but it, it, yeah, it took a while. It took a while. So you were doing, uh, you started off doing commercials. Is that basically like what you were doing to really kind of get your feet wet? in? The well, no, the first success I actually had was, uh, do, uh, doing narrations. Ah. 
nothing huge. These were mostly like sales presentations or, uh, you know, your benefits as an employee of Flegman Industries. Oh, <clears throat> I mean, they're boring uh, as hell. Yeah. They, they put the poor devil they've just hired in a conference room and play him this tape. And you're the narrator. Mm-hmm. And uh, but I seem to have this. I think it came from doing rip and read newscasts on the radio because sometimes you have to do your own news. Mm-hmm. And so you throw a record on, you run down the hall, you rip a five minute newscast off the wire service, which none of this exists anymore, but that's how we did it back then. And you scan it real quick looking for garbles. Mm-hmm. And then boom, news time. And you start reading this stuff and it's yeah. as big a shock to you as the audience, but you don't want to sound like that. <clears throat> you have to create the illusion. Not only am I thoroughly familiar with this material, but I wrote it. <laughs> and I know what I'm talking about. If I tell you the president did such and such, he did it. Right. And uh, you're just a, a schmuck reading off a, a thing you tore off the wire service two minutes ago. So I, I, I developed this authoritative read where it sounded like I knew what I was talking about, even if I didn't. And uh, the people who produced these various uh, non-broadcast industrials, as they were called, and probably Mm -hmm. still are, seemed to like that delivery. So that was the first little little taste of success I had in voiceovers, was doing these sort of sales presentation type things. And then I started doing the odd commercial here and there. And, um, you know, it just, it snowballs. And suddenly you realize, Lord, I've got a career here. I yeah. think yeah. the phone keeps ringing. I must be doing something right. You know? It's funny you should say that you, you say that like how you started doing the uh, the industrial stuff, because, you know, as I was saying at the at the very beginning of, of this episode, how, you know, how you've done so much that I've always you know, like wanted to do or wanted to get involved in and everything. And it just so happens that um, the day after I recorded my demos, when I was doing my voiceover training, over here in St. Louis, the day after I started my next job. And it was, you know, a full-time job. And they basically like, they asked me to record some PowerPoint presentations for them. And it was um, because like the, the previous people that were doing it, they're not voiceover artists in any way. So they were just like stumbling through the reading. But when they heard that I had some experience with it, I was doing like about over a dozen of those types of presentations before I left there. So it's, it's funny you should say that. That's how you started, because that's kind of how I started. That's what led me eventually to get into audiobook narrating. So that's really cool that, that, um, that it was that you had gone in that direction. Um, so when, um, so after, you know, like after getting your, your feet wet doing all of this, what made you start turning in the direction toward animation? Well, I was trying to do that all along. The thing about voiceovers, and I think it's still true today, is there's no one job that's going to make you wealthy. Mm -hmm. Uh, You, if you're going to be a success in voiceovers, you have to rack up a ton of small and medium jobs all across the, the, the spectrum. Yeah. So it's commercials, radio and TV, it's, it's narrations, it's promos and trailers, if you can get those, uh, it's animation, it's games, it's voice matching, which is a new thing that, uh, that's come along where they, they want you to try to match the voice of an, a, sometimes a known celebrity actor. 
who for one reason or another is not available to do one particular line they need to stick in a movie or in a trailer. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, and, and there's other, there's Walla work. Um, mm -hmm. That's where you do crowd sounds for movies and television shows. There's uh, voiceovers in movies. I've done that stuff. And in television where you're the voice of a radio that's over in the corner of the room or a TV or you're, yep. you know, train now leaving on track nine. It could be anything, any kind of a voice that, uh, that they need. Yeah. And the more, the more versatile you are, the, the, the better the chance you'll connect with something. Mm -hmm. Maybe you don't get a cartoon, but you get a game. Maybe you don't get the game, but you get the commercial. Right. Uh, you know, the, the, the broader your range, the, the, more, the more likely you are to be able to uh, make a career out of it. Yeah. 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 And so, um, so once you got into animation, was it, um, did you start with, um, if I'm not mistaken, did you start with Hanna-Barbera? Oh, that's interesting. My phone is making an interesting little noise. Sorry about that. I thought I <laughs> silenced okay. it. Oh, no worries. I told you never to call me here. <laughs> um, <clears throat> yeah, the animation, actually the first work I did was for a guy named Wally Burr. You may be familiar uh -huh. with his name. Oh, yeah. He, of course, went on to direct uh, both Transformers and uh, G.I. Joe, as well as a slew of other shows. Yeah. At the time, he was doing um, Spider-Man. Oh. And he and my agent met somewhere and they kind of hit it off. Uh, she was struggling and he was kind of struggling. And he at some point said, anytime you want to send any of your people over, I'll be happy to audition them, uh, which was very kind of him. And so the first animation work I did was for Wally. He would call me in and I would just play three incidental characters in an episode, you know, a, a parking lot attendant, a cop and a truck driver, something like that. The first Hanna-Barbera job I did was on an episode of Richie Rich, where I played a pushy salesman who gets his tie caught in the door. <laughs> and the way I got that, Hanna-Barbera, they, they had just hired a new uh, director of, uh, I, I'm not, I don't know what his official title was, but he directed all their, their voice sessions. Mm -hmm. A lovely guy named Gordon Hunt. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And he, he recognized that for a variety of reasons, there was going to be an explosion of animation work. Mm -hmm. And he said, you can't keep using the same five people over and over again, which they kind of had been doing up to that point. He says, we got to get some fresh talent in here. Yeah. So he instituted a thing where if you had never worked for Hanna-Barbera, you could schedule an appointment, come in and do five minutes of anything, whatever you wanted to do. So I did one of those, and that led to the Richie Rich booking. And I cannot describe, because Hanna-Barbera actually had a lovely little studio set up. It, it looked kind of like a movie studio, might, just yeah. smaller. And they had a guard and a gate, and I drove up to the gate. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I gave him my name, and Lord, the gate flew open, and I was in. I, I still remember that day. It's like, wow, I'm going to work for Hanna-Barbera. I guess I'm in the business, finally. So cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oh, cool. And to, to walk in there and see some of the legends of voiceovers, uh, Joni Gerber and Michael Bell and Lenny Weinrib. In my mind, they're all there. They probably weren't, you know. I, I, it was around that time that I met uh, the legendary Frank Welker. Oh, yeah. Uh, who 
Uh, if you if the name is not familiar, uh, Google him. Check him out on IMDb. I think he has more IMDb credits than any other actor. It's got to be. I was eight, just about to say the same thing. I think that's. Yeah. I think that's. Uh, I think he has the, uh, um, the the credit for that. You know, for having yeah. most uh, most IMDb credits. And he, uh, I remember, <laughs> as I started knocking around doing guest shots on various shows, everywhere I went, Welker would somehow be in the cast of, the, of whatever show I was working on. About the third or fourth time that happened, I said, are you in everything? He said, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, that's, that's pretty much it. <laughs> like, you can definitely say that, yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, 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 yeah, that's, that's so wild. I guess I, I, my assumption is like, it would have something to do with the, um, the loosening of the chains from the FCC, you know, like all of a sudden it seemed uh, that kind of by allowing so many different, like, you know, toy related properties to get out there in animation form. It seemed like, seemed like they could kind of read the writing on the wall and seem like... Uh, yeah, that, I really owe a big part of my career to Ronald Reagan. Yeah. I didn't realize it at the time, and I really am not a big fan of Ronald Reagan. We don't need to get into that. But he did me a solid. Uh, he was... Uh, one of his uh, ideas was deregulation. Mm -hmm. of, and he appointed a guy in charge of the FCC who was also a big fan of deregulation. And they deregulated children's television, and it suddenly became economically feasible to do these syndicated shows and run them in the after-school hours, usually on the independent stations, because the networks were running things like, well, Oprah wasn't around them, but, you know, Phil right. Donahue or whatever it was. Mm -hmm. And suddenly there was this explosion of work. And Gordon saw that coming, as did others. And, uh, but at the time, even though I was benefiting from it, I didn't realize why this was happening. I, it was only years later when I read up on the period, and I, I realized, oh, of course, that's what happened. That's yeah. what happened, yeah, yeah. And, yeah, this, this whole period, like, this is, you know, this is me from, you know, six, seven years old. And I, I'm just getting involved with all of that. And all of a sudden, I'm seeing a whole lot of different properties really come into my seven, eight-year-old brain, <laughs> and I'm introduced to, like, all these different worlds, which really just, I mean, it just stirred up so much inspiration for me and just wanting to, like, be involved in that in some, in some way, shape, or form. So, like, seeing all these different, these different shows just coming one after another. You had He-Man and the Masters of the Universe. Then all of a sudden, there was, there was the five-part... Um, the five-part miniseries that started up G.I. Joe and you have Voltron, um, which, you know, which was a huge step forward for me. And, um, and I understand that um, you were a bit, you know, you were a main voice on Voltron as well, right? You were Keith. Yes, right? I was Commander Keith. And I also did. I also did the voice of Pidge, which I can still barely do. But, uh, <laughs> you know. Yeah, actually, that my was fr my friends and I. You, you'll love this. My friends and I, when uh, when I was in elementary school, we would um, on the way to school, we would all like you know talk about Voltron and everything. We would assign characters to each other, hmm. and they always looked at me because I had glasses. They was like, "Okay, you're Pidge." I'm like, "All right." <laughs> so yeah, yeah that, that was that voice was created in about ninety seconds, maybe not even that long. Because I got cast to play Keith, and I, you know, I was still pretty new to the business, and I kept waiting for somebody to point at me and say, he's just a disc jockey. He's not an actor. Get him out of here. 
And yeah. uh, so I, I, I show up to play Keith and the guy who's directing shoves this picture under my nose and it looks like an elf with glasses. And he says, yep. what do you got for this guy? And I'm flailing around. And, I finally came up with this. And he said, that's it. Perfect. <laughs> and I thought it was a one-off, you know, he'd be in one episode yeah. and gone. It turned out he's in the whole show. Now I'm stuck with this. <laughs> I didn't work so do you out. think like it was, it was going to be like a difficult voice for you to maintain? during? No, not that? really. I just think if I'd had more time, uh, and realize this is something you're going to have to do for another 120 episodes. I might've come up with something else, but who knows, you know, it worked. I, I have no, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, as, like as a kid, I was able to understand and, you know, every single word he said. So it was definitely, it was definitely the good, you know, good voice to use for him. Um, yeah. Yeah. It, seemed it, was to also, it was also like right around that time when, uh, when a, little known advertising company gets in the game and comes up with Sunbow Productions teaming up with Marvel and all of a sudden here they are coming out with the one-two punch of G.I. Joe and Transformers and this is you know this is like the culmination of everything that I was doing like as a as a kid just like all of a sudden seeing these kinds of series because it was not only you know like not only something that you know that definitely you know clicked with me as a kid but even looking back on them, and which I do often, um, I've you know come to realize that you know especially in, in especially with GI Joe, there's some really good writing in in there as well. Yes, um, there did is. Did you notice that there was like that there was you know that that you were working with uh, with a group of people that have really kind of like picked up their game when it comes to this? Yes, it's funny. I I say in the book that most actors think the script is something that falls out of the ceiling 10 minutes before they show up. But I'm always very mindful that there's some poor devil looking at a blank piece of paper or a blank screen that he or she has to fill up with something. Yeah. And yeah, we had a, 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 I've since met them. Um, the sort of the core writing group, as I understand it, were uh, Flint Dilly, Buzz Dixon, and... Uh, mm -hmm. Ron Friedman, and uh, uh, they just did a, 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 an outstanding job. The thing that I, <clears throat> that I say about G.I. Joe and Transformers, the, the rap on them at the time was, well, these are nothing but 22-minute long toy commercials. Right. And my answer to that is, if that were the case, I don't think anybody would be asking me to be on a podcast 35 years later to talk about them. And there wouldn't be these conventions where people come by the thousands to meet us. Absolutely. Uh, you know, they were, whether by accident or design, the producers put together a team of producers, writers, animators, actors, I'm, I don't think I'm leaving anybody out. If I am, I apologize. But just a team where the whole became greater than the sum of its parts. Mm -hmm. And we, we ended up uh, creating something that was perhaps far more profound than the initial concept was. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, so that's my answer to, to their just toy commercials. They're, they're more than that. Oh yeah, yeah, and um, and I definitely need to make sure that that our listeners know that uh, that you were uh, you were not only you were uh, you were also you, in on GI Joe. You were the voice of Dusty, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. Um, 
And you're also the voice of one of the most, I would say, beloved characters in all of G.I. Joe. Um, who, I uh, have who a feeling I know what you're going to say now, matey. <laughs> <laughs> Well, a, a, a young uh, a young sailor that was uh, just happened to be like making his first appearance with his feet up on a table reading a newspaper and yeah yeah and, as I recall that, there's a full-on brawl yeah. going on while he's up reading his newspaper with his feet up on the table yeah 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 that was yep. <clears throat> that was a, a the shipwreck is probably close to the I, I suppose the three characters that everybody wants to talk about her Keith and Voltron shipwrecked in GI Joe and uh, Springer in Transformers. Those yep. are probably my most popular characters, but shipwreck. Yeah, that was a, a wonderful part. And the thing that I liked about him was if you think about it in GI Joe, the good guys were really, really good. And the bad mm -hmm. guys were really, really bad. And then there was Shipwreck, who kind of wanted to do the right thing, but he didn't like taking orders. And that made him yeah. a fascinating, conflicted, interesting character. And I just loved playing that part. It was a yeah, great... he, he is, yeah, he, he was so much fun. And uh, so when, uh, when you're given these types of characters, and uh, you know, like, what is it that you're, is it up to you to basically just kind of like put your own spin on it to find that character or do they have something in mind when they first hand them to you? Well, most of the characters were original concepts. Now, I don't, I don't know. They may have based the other characters on, on other performances and I'm not aware of it. But in the case of Shipwreck, they had something very specific in mind which they did not uh, divulge initially. I came into the audition and there was a picture of a sailor and a one or two paragraph description. I don't even know what it said. And I started to do the part or do the, the audition lines using various voices and textures. And I could tell nobody was thrilled. And there was a guy sitting over in the corner and he made eye contact with me and he said, uh, have you ever seen the last detail? Ah, there we go. And as luck would have it, I had. The Last Detail is a lovely little movie that's kind of been forgotten. It's early on in Jack Nicholson's career. Uh, detail as in assignment. It's the story of a sailor, uh, Billy Badass Badusky, and he and another sailor are assigned the task of escorting this young uh, sailor to the brig, uh, the Navy prison. He's run afoul right. of the authorities. And they decide that they can't send this kid to prison without showing him a little fun. And so they go out to have some fun and then the various misadventures ensue. And there's one scene in particular where they're in a bar and the bartender refuses to serve them. And uh, at one point screams at them, do I have to call the shore patrol? At which point Nicholson's character hauls out this big 45 caliber semi-auto, slams it on the bars. You want the shore patrol? We are the mother bleeping shore patrol. <laughs> and that's what flashed in my mind when this guy said, did you see the last detail? And uh, with that in mind, I once again did the audition lines and suddenly everybody perked up and the guy in the corner said, you got it. Yeah. yeah and uh, usually that's the kiss of death. But in this case, uh, no, it was true. I got it. And uh, yeah. yeah, he was definitely... Uh, they had they had a badass Badusky in mind when they wrote that character. Oh yeah, yeah, and uh, I, I remember Frank Langella labeled um, 
uh, his Skeletor from the 87 Masters of the Universe movie as a delicious character. And I, I would I would definitely say the same thing about Shipwreck. It seemed mm-hmm. like you were having, from just what I can hear from your voice in those performances and everything, you were having a blast. I could tell, you know, like from yeah. what you were doing. Yeah, it. yeah. I, I, I had a lot of fun doing that character. No question. Yeah, so the... Um, so, um, speaking of G.I. Joe, there are two specific episodes that, um, that you were, you know, really a, a, central, a central character in that I definitely would be remiss if I didn't mention them at all. And one of them, both of them were two-parters. Uh, one of them was, uh, was one featuring Dusty called The Traitor. And then there was one at uh, the season finale with Shipwreck called There's No Place Like Springfield. I would point to both of those and say, like, if anyone just wants to call these toy commercials, you watch those episodes and you'll see that they're far above what, you know, what you think they are. When you got those scripts, especially There's No Place Like Springfield, what were your thoughts like going through that? Because There's No Place Like Springfield is a really messed up type of story. You know, like getting into, you know, like this sort of deception that Shipwreck was going through this whole time. It was really not, you know, not quite, you know, kid centric. Yeah. I've, I've talked to a number of fans who say the, those two episodes really uh, haunted them for years. Yeah. I don't think I realized at the time that of course we didn't see any visuals. Right. And a lot of it is, is what they did visually. Um, I hope I didn't traumatize anybody too, or we didn't traumatize anybody too badly. I think really, I there's a comment attributed to Martin Sheen. I don't know whether he said it or not, but it, they said, what, what's the first thing you look for in a script? He says, I count my lines. Mm-hmm. And I, I counted my lines in those two, and I had a lot of them. Yeah. So yeah. I thought, well, this is, this is going to be fun. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but I don't think at the time that I did it, I realized quite how twisted the, the whole storyline was going to be. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that, I mean, just seemed like just I, it's still it still like blows my mind to see that, uh, you know, have that moment of shipwreck walking into his his home and there's Mara and his and his daughter, both with guns like aimed at him. Like that's that's <laughs> not it's it's not exactly something that you want like in kids programming. It definitely wouldn't make the wouldn't wouldn't have made the cut now. Um, but it was. Yeah, I mean, just those kinds of risks that they were going with. And like, um, were you able to just kind of like sit down afterwards and and you know, like watch the episode to see like what um, what they had in mind? No, there's a tremendous lag time. But the first thing we do is re- record the voice, mm-hmm. and the voice tracks get sent to the animators, and they go to work. And that's a long, or was in those days, a long process. Yeah. So sometimes months would go by before the episode you recorded actually aired. Mm-hmm. And uh, most of them ran in the daytime and we were pretty busy. I wasn't home most of the time when G.I. Joe came on the air. So I, there wasn't any way I could watch it anyway. Oh, wow. So it was uh, years later we caught up with some of this stuff. Um, yeah. What, were your, what was your thought when you actually got to sit down and watch that two-parter? Because that was... Yeah, I watched it fairly recently. And it, yeah, it's... Um, <laughs> It's not that bad, but I can see where if you're eight, nine, ten years old, that could really uh, haunt your dreams. I forgot, did Flint write that or 
or Buzz or I, I forget who wrote it. I think they were all trying to push the envelope. Those guys. I want to say that th- I think that was around the time when Flint was already on Transformers. So I think yeah. that may have been something that Buzz worked on. Um, I know Ron was- Friedman wrote the death of the uh, Optimus Prime. He, yes. In fact, he's got a book out now. I'm called titled "I'm the Man Who Killed Optimus Prime." <laughs> And yeah, and uh, yeah, yeah um, I actually when I was when I was talking to when I was talking to Flynn a couple of months ago, uh, he was saying how uh, that was, and this was something that Buzz uh, Buzz had um, confirmed as well on the commentary track for GI Joe the movie was that originally Duke died in their movie, yeah. and that's that's what you know coerced Hasbro to think like, hey, let's go ahead and kill Optimus Prime, and then some you know, some different uh, technical issues, you know, like delayed GI Joe. So Transformers came out first. And then when they saw the impact that, uh, that, that Optimus's death made, then all of a sudden they were just like, eh, let's, let's, let's put Duke into a coma again. Yeah. <laughs> like, no, we, did, we didn't uh, record the GI Joe movie until after the Transformers movie had come out. So the yeah. damage was already done, but yeah, they, they were going to make the same mistake twice. I, eh. <laughs> you know, in my book, I say it's like hiring Tom Cruise to star in the next Mission Impossible movie and then halfway through the movie have his character die and be replaced by somebody you've never heard of. What right. do you think would happen in the theaters? Yeah. yeah. Assuming anybody could go to the theater at this point. but Right. I don't think they respected their audience. I don't think they respected the characters they created. I, I, I Well... You know, their store, they got a right to run it however they want to. But I, I just thought that was a monumental blunder. Now, uh, now, obviously, you had, you know, like a big part in the 86 Transformers movie. But you had also done uh, done some work on seasons one and two. So, like, uh, from what I understand, you were part of uh, season one. Uh, so you got to be two Constructicons and a Dinobot, you know, like mm-hmm. as, as the start of it all. What was it like getting into that series? You know, I had been doing G.I. Joe for a little while. And at some point, my agent said, you know, Do- uh, uh, Wally's doing another show. I said, really? No, I had no idea. Oh, yes, yes. Well, uh, let me see if I can get you in there for some of the auditions. And I don't recall in what order I got the first three characters, but somehow they, they came along and I showed up for the recording session. And there was no uh, Bible you could read. By Bible, it's, it's a synopsis of whatever show you're working on. Uh, if you do a sitcom, you know, here's the Bible and you read that. And it, it just describes all the characters and their inter, interrelationships and the tone of the show. And so you can walk on the set and sort of know what you're getting into. Well, there was none of that with Transformers. I just showed up and stood in front of a mic and away we went. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't make head or tail out of the whole thing. I didn't know what was going on. I would just rely on Wally to uh, tell me how to read these lines and try to give him what he wanted, you know. And uh, to this day, I'm hazy as to the plot of Transformers, (laughs) to be honest with you. I know a little more now, but honestly, when I did that, most of the early episodes, I was utterly clueless. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But they were fun. They were fun episodes. Yeah. Yeah, it, it all worked. So, you know, who cares if I knew? Maybe I was better off not knowing. <laughs> so you got, so, um, so then all of a sudden, you know, the movie comes around. Now, from what I understand, like that was, that was in development pretty early in the, in the, um, in the run of Transformers. I think like that was starting there, that was really like picking up around the time that uh, the, se- the second season was 
in the works. Uh, so they had a lot of, you know, it was the, uh, the majority of the, of the characters that we all knew were from that first season. And so in comes this brand new character um, amongst all the other brand new characters, an Autobot triple changer named Springer. And uh, what, was, what was it like when you got to take a look at, at him and see what, uh, what he was all about? Well, I enjoyed uh, that character. It, uh, you know, the voice was relatively easy to do. Uh, yeah. You know, hook and slag were what I call throat rippers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, or not, a hook was, a, a hook actually hook, was, hook was... Hook was, uh, was the regal, you know, the, the yeah. butler. Kind of yeah, thing. hook yeah. was me. Uh, <laughs> my failed impression of Frank Welker doing Gregory Peck is what <laughs> hook is. You know, he talks like this. He's very, very imperious. And he just right. talks this That's... way. But, uh, but Slag and Bone Crushers... Slag was, uh, was down in here, did this sort of thing, which, you know, is interesting, but if you do it for about an hour and a half, you have no voice. <laughs> and then Bone Crusher was another one that was painful over long periods of time when Wally would say, well, all right, let's do that again. Take 29... And uh, okay, Wally. See you next week. And if I'm not mistaken, I think you had like uh, you had a moment actually in um, in Transformers the movie where those two vo- where Bone Crusher and Hook were right on top of each other. Um, Could very well be. Uh, I'm, I've watched it a few times. Evidently, so- <laughs> yeah, I have no memory of any of this, and I did it. But uh, okay. Yeah. So getting to getting to. Uh, work on on that was there a was it like a different sort of setup the uh from from the way from the uh the, the typical like animated show oh the the movie yeah being yeah well the biggest difference was we worked in a different studio wally owned uh, two studios at the time they were both on hollywood way they were in the same block they were you could have walked in between them in about two minutes mm-hmm. one was called wally burn north the other was called wally burn south most of what we did, we did at Wally Burn North, which was a smaller facility, uh, in particular the, uh, the booth where the microphones were, really could accommodate maybe six actors comfortably, and sometimes it'd be 12, 15 actors, and it was just was a... Wally Burr South was large and spacious, and I always wondered, why the hell don't we work here? This is much nicer, but, you know, I wasn't in charge. But we did the, both of the movies in Wally Burr South. And that was the biggest difference. We were just in a different studio. And I think, oh, in the Transformers, at a certain point, the producers came out and to observe. And little by little, they ended up taking over the session. Really? And eventually, yeah, eventually there was no pretense of playing scenes anymore. We were going line by line, and they would, they would ask you to do the line six times. Hmm. So they separated with a slate. So it'd be one ABC. Drop the gun, Louie. Drop the gun, Louie. Drop the gun, Louie. Two ABC. Drop the gun, Louie. Drop the gun, Louie. Drop the gun, Louie. And but it takes, uh, takes a little bit of the, you know, there's like a, there was like a real like sense of like camaraderie in the in the studios from what I could see, you know, from what I could hear. Mm-hmm. Um, it just sounded like everyone was there and everyone, everybody was like interacting off of each other more. And then, so to kind of do that, do it like that, it seemed like there was kind of taking a little bit of that, that extra oomph away from it. 
Well, unfortunately, that's the way it goes in animation a lot of the time. Animated movies, uh, they work everybody separately, I think, for the most part. Yeah. I remember Angela Lansbury when she did, uh, what did she do? She played the oh, teapot. What Beast. movie would that have been? Yeah, that was uh, Beauty and the Beast. Oh, yeah, I think so. She talked about how weird it was to not have other actors to work with and bounce off of. I mean, that's a big part of the energy of acting is is the other actor feeding you your cue. Yeah. And he or she may de deliver the line in a, in a way you never thought of that, that they would. And suddenly your line is influenced by that. You come back, you plan to do it a certain way, but you hear what they did. You go, oh, I got to, I got to, you know, improvise a different, a different emphasis. And working alone, you sort of have to imagine the feed line or the director reads it to you, you know. Drop the gun, Louie. You know, you're, you're getting nothing. You're, he's just reading the words. They're not actors. And uh, yeah. so you have to use your imagination. And it's not a way that I, I enjoy working. And I frequently think I would have been better if, if, we, if I could have worked with the other actor. But you do what you have to do. And it's, it's proved useful in working on games. Because, of course, on games, you're all alone. And there yeah. is no feed line. A lot of the time, you're, you're talking to the player. Right. You know, so you have to use your imagination to crank up that read. Mm -hmm. And uh, I sort of developed those muscles working on shows where they interrupted us a lot and or just had us through lines in the clear. Right. Uh, so I guess it all worked out in the end. Yeah. And um, so I, I know you've you've told this particular story um, quite a few times. You told it on the. 30th anniversary uh, DVD for Transformers the movie, and also I remember you you mentioned it at the um, the at the Improv with uh, with Rob Paulson, but um, you have a a wonderful story that I really hope uh, hope you'll share with uh, with my listeners, um, since you did get to work somewhat with the uh, with the celebrity voices that were coming in, and one in particular, um, a gentleman named Lionel Stander. Yeah, the sort of interaction that you had with him when when I heard the story, I was just like, "Oh, that's that's everything that's right about voice acting." So, um, if you can, please just share a little bit about. Um, oh, about sure. Well, Lionel Stander was an amazing uh, character, and he apparently <clears throat> he was actually I think seven years older than Orson Welles was when we did the Transformers. He actually had appeared in a silent movie when he was a teenager. That's how long he'd been around. And, you know, the name Lionel Stander, you, you picture some tall Shakespearean actor. But yeah. instead, he was of, I think, Russian Jewish uh, heritage. He had a face like a bullfrog and a voice like... It sounded like this. This is the way he talked, you know. Uh, you guys, uh, I never did the cartoon in my life. I don't know what the hell I'm doing here, but... Uh... Yeah. I just saw him. I watched. I rewatched Once Upon a Time in the West, the uh, Sergio Leone movie oh, with, yeah. uh, uh, well, and and he's in it. He, just a small scene, but he's in it, and I just cracked up. But anyway, <laughs> colorful guy with an amazing yeah. backstory. Look him up sometime, and had an amazing life. Anyway, he'd never done animation before, so now they've got us lined up, four microphones. We're standing shoulder to shoulder, looking at Wally in the booth. And Lionel, every time he does one of his lines, he turns his head to look at me 
because he needs to make eye contact. And of course, that means he goes off mic, just as I just did when I turned my head. And Molly never looked at us. He always just looked at the storyboard. So, uh, Lionel, you were off mic there. Going to need that again. Uh, Why? <laughs> I thought, oh, my God, we'll be here all day. And I looked on the script, and I realized I didn't have any lines for a while. So I tiptoed out in front of the microphones and I stood and made eye contact with Lionel. And he did all his lines to me as though I was another actor in the scene. And now he could stay on mic. Everything was fine. And when I had a line coming, I'd run back in front of my microphone, do it, run back around and uh, provide eye contact for Lionel. Wally never knew I was doing that. I told that story at a convention we were both at, and he was sat there with his jaw hanging on his chest. He said, I had no idea that was going on. I said, well, you, know, you ought to look at us once in a while, Wally. You'd be amazed what goes on there. <laughs> oh, that, that's, uh, I, and yeah, I mean, I can't, I can't begin to say like just how much of an inspiration that movie really, you know, really was for me. Um, and, you know, like we all have like that one, you know, one thing that they really kind of hold on to from childhood and that for, you know, for, for many reasons. And I think a part of it was the fact that they took so many risks with, you know, like with killing off as many characters as they did, especially Optimus Prime. And, um, but, you know, and, you know, with its PG rating, you know, and everything, giving it like the little extra freedom to go as far as they did. Um, that really, you know, it's always, always a pleasure for me to be able to, I mean, the fact that I was able to, I've, so far I've been able to talk to you and Flint and really get to share, you know, just my adoration for that, for that movie. Um, and, you know, like, I also would be remiss if I didn't tell you this real quick, um, right around the time when the movie was supposed to come out, which was August 8th of 86, um, my uncle calls up my father. And he says, don't take George to go see Transformers the movie. I'm going to take him. And so that I, I had to wait a couple extra weeks, but I wound up seeing it. And it was, um, it was, a, it was a really fun thing that, uh, that he was able to do. You know, just kind of take, you know, take me over to the movies over in Jersey and we got, to, we got to enjoy it. And on the way there, he was asking me, like, what's the, what's the breakdown of this whole movie? And I gave him like a quick summary of it. And I'm really glad I did because the movie really kind of drops you right in the middle of it all. Um, but I was, uh, it was something that really, you know, really connected with me for just so, you know, it's its own reasons. Like, you know, I, I it was something that I really, really gravitated toward and still do, you know, to this day. And so it's not, the fact that I've been able to, you know, to talk with you about it is just a real pleasure for me you know, to be able to do that. Um, so first of all, just, you know, thank you so much for being a part of this, you know, for being a part of the movie and this, you know, and the series as a whole that really, you know, it, it means so much, you know, to me that you were able to do that. Oh, well, thank you. Well, I, you know, I had fun. And as I said earlier, I, I had, I, I was lucky enough to have a job that was, that I enjoyed, that was fun, that yeah. I wanted to do. So really. I should be thanking you and all the other fans for giving me that wonderful experience. Yeah. But that, and, but the, the great thing is that, you know, like after Transformers, after you got to, you know, you, you're actually, you know, like what's, what's really interesting is that uh, the character of Springer was in this 
was, you know, basically surrounded by all these other new characters that were all voiced by celebrities. But yeah. you were able to, you were able to, to voice that one and still continue on, you know, in the series. So that was, that was, yeah, nice that was a stroke of luck. And I don't know why exactly I had recorded a number of episodes for the television version as Springer. Yeah. Uh, but I don't think they had aired yet. So why they didn't replace me with a celebrity for the movie, I don't know. Maybe the, they didn't think the part was quite big enough. Uh, mm -hmm. I don't know. I was very lucky. Yeah. Uh, you know, a lot of people who had major roles uh, in the television series only had a couple of lines in the movie and uh, were not yeah. too happy about it. But Springer, that, that was, it was a wonderful opportunity to get to do that in the, in the, in the movie as well as uh, the, the TV series. And you got to, and you got to, um, you were given one of the most um, iconic lines in the whole movie as well. Yeah, yeah. I still remember being at the theater in Westwood uh, and when that line came on. And the line, <laughs> if you don't know, is, uh, I've got better things to do tonight than die. Yes. Uh, that one hit the uh, speakers and the whole place went nuts. They jumped <laughs> up and down and cheered and yelled. It lasted for God, I don't know, 30, 40 seconds. And I thought, wow. And there was no other dialogue that, that you know that was that was following that. So they had a they had the the time to really kind of bask in that in that yeah. line because all the yeah. rest of it was sound effects and explosions because they were all shooting on Devastator. Yeah, um, and people still remember that line and want to hear it. So that's a that's a lovely gift. And it's I consider it a gift that you were able to you know to say it on my show. Like that's you know that's something I um, will definitely be you know be be ecstatic about um so so after so after transformers you also you stuck around with sunbow as well correct you were also doing you were also involved in i believe uh visionaries and inhumanoids as well correct? right yeah we did uh we did those and one other one that's escaping me but none yeah. of those <clears throat> none of those had the, the success or the longevity of uh, transformers and gi joe those those are the big ones yeah, and, and uh, you were also in Gem too. You got to um, was it uh, the Hector Ramirez character that you got to? Yeah, Hector Ramirez. I think has the distinction of having appeared in GI Joe, Transformers, Gem, and something else. I think like the only only character. Yeah, maybe in Humanoids, the only character that's done that. Yeah, he was a newscaster type. Right. Yeah, twenty questions. Yep. <laughs> I guess I guess he was supposed to be Geraldo Rivera, but nobody told me that, yeah. and uh, I did, made no attempt to imitate Geraldo. I wouldn't even know how. Right. <laughs> but, uh, and I think in one case somebody else voiced him. Oh yeah. Yeah, I think the one the one Transformers appearance he makes, somebody else did it. I have oh. a feeling they said, "We don't need to bring Ross in for one line. Give it to Harry over there." No, who will, who, nobody will notice. Right. So, <laughs> who, who would have thought that, like, you know, 20, 30 years later, that's yeah, when you're yeah. just like, hey. <laughs> so, um, so then you were, you were also involved in, you, you'd also gotten involved around that time with some live action movies as well. Um, so I, you told a great story in Vocal Recall about working with Warren Beatty on Dick Tracy. and. Well, that's my one and only on-camera appearance, <clears throat> brief as it is. Uh, I'm, I'm up on the screen for a nanosecond, but I played the green uh, newsman. Yeah. Funny, I just thought of it. I'm the green goblin and the green newsman. Oh, that's right. Uh, yeah. 
but uh, yeah, yeah, that was my my one experience with being in front of the camera, and uh, it's it's a long. I devote it's it's funny. I'm I'm on the screen for about a second and a half, and I get a whole chapter out of it. <laughs> if you've ever if you've ever wondered what it's like, sort of on a moment to moment basis, to show up and and be in a in a movie, well, that's the chapter, the yeah, day that and, I spent a, working on that movie. And it's a hell of a chapter too, because you get to you talked a lot about working with Warren Beatty and how he was, because he, I mean, obviously producer, director, star, the man was very hands-on in, yes. uh, in that movie. Um, well, what I had not realized until I spent that day there was that you go to see a movie and the star of the movie or the stars of the movie, they're, they're what you're focused on and yeah. it's all about them. <clears throat> but when you show up on the set, 90% of the time, the actors are like furniture, you know, put right. them over there. We need to, we got to light this and the camera here and I need this and I want that. And the, at the center of the, the, the vortex of this incredible amount of activity sits the director. Yeah. And all day long, people come up and ask him questions or her mm -hmm. and they have to come up with answers. They're the center of attention. The stars... Once, once they're filming, obviously the stars are the focal point. But ninety percent of the time, they're in their trailers waiting. Right. And the director, who's who keeps the show going. <clears throat> it was just fascinating to watch uh, Beatty at the center of this storm. And years later, I read a an interview with Rob Reiner, the first time he directed, and he was sitting there nervously, uh, <laughs> wondering what what should I do, and right. a grip came over and said, "Where do you want me to put this trash can?" And he said, I don't know, but put it anywhere you want. And I said, I'm sorry, sir, you have to tell me where you want it. And he realized, oh, God, that's the job. Oh, man. People are going to ask me to make decisions, and I hope they're the right ones, or at least most of them are the right ones. But I'm, I'm the one who has to make the decision, and that's really what directing is. You know, yeah. you want to shoot it here or here? Shoot it there. You want this right. kind of lens? Yes, I want that. No, I want that kind of lens. You know, well, we just did it. Is that the take, or should we do it again? Your call. You're the director. Uh, 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 oh, I guess it was okay. <laughs> Fine. Moving on. You know, right. it's just a whole day of making decisions. And uh, I was just struck by how calm Warren Beatty was in the eye of this storm. Yeah. He never seemed to get agitated or irritated. He was just very, very calm. Yeah, it def definitely seemed like that. You know, from uh, from reading it, you know, it sound sounded like he he definitely had like a firm idea of everything that he wanted to do with that, um, with that movie. So, well, it was um, far from his first rodeo. True. True. And, and he'd already got it in his Oscar, you know, for Reds. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, he was, he, he definitely, uh, he definitely worked his way up, you know, into, uh, in, into that spot. So that's, uh, um, so that, that is great. And I would be, um, I, I would, De um, I would definitely need to um, just mention a, qu a quick little, uh, quick little um, note with uh, with your with your voiceover work is that uh, you've also played a played a little part in two movies that are in quite quite a bit of uh, rotation in this house, uh, Back to the Future Part Two and Gremlins Two. Ah, yeah, yes, I was fortunate enough to get to do those. Especially the uh, Back to the Future 2, <clears throat> where I'm the voice of the uh, Biff Tannen Museum. Yep. And uh, 
You know, a lot of people remember that, and some people are quite uh, reverential. You're part of the trilogy. Yeah. Well, I guess a little tiny part, but I'll take what I can get. That's a big part, too, because that, that led to, that, uh, that teased so much of what was to come in part three. Yeah. So I wish I had a really sexy, interesting story about doing that job, but it was kind of one of those another day at the office things. I may not have even auditioned for it that I recall. I think they just asked me to come over. Mm -hmm. Did it in the basement of the Alfred Hitchcock Theater on the Universal lot. They have a theater there, but in the basement, they have an entire uh, sound studio and sound effects set up. Oh, and that's where we did it. That's, that's, that's pretty sexy right there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And um, two or three takes. Everybody's, everybody's happy. Thanks, everybody. Goodbye. Yeah. And uh, I wish I had a better story. But, uh, <laughs> and you were also, um, were, you the, were you the voice of the clamp building in Gremlins 2? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you and, were the one that, that uh, got to do like all the, the random things like talking about, uh, you know, like how, um, what was it like? The, when, it met, when, it, uh, when it does the fire alarm, like, you know, when it rings the, the fire alarm, you're basically like breaking down what fire is and then saying like, this building is on fire. <laughs> I, the only part I remember was I was the voice of the men's room. That's right. Yep. <laughs> and, uh, and I thought that would be interesting on a resume. Yeah. <laughs> Excuse me, Mr. Ross. Which one of you is? Oh, you. Yeah. You say with a. You, you played a men's room. Do you do you not mean you played a man in a men's room? No, no, no. I played the the whole men's room. Oh, I'm very right. versatile. Mr. Yeah, he says. Uh, men's room. Yeah. <laughs> Hey, mister, welcome to the men's room. Something oh, like that. Great. And then as he's leaving, it's, did somebody forget to wash his hands? <laughs> oh, it's so good. It's so good. Yeah. Did you get to, did you get to uh, work with Joe Dante on that? Or was it just... Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But the, the Joe Dante memory that I treasure is uh, I did a, a toy commercial in a movie he did called uh, Small Soldiers. Oh, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> it was about a bunch of toys, yeah. I think, that come to life. Mm -hmm. Something like that. Yeah. So I'm, he, there, there's this uh, fake toy commercial in the movie, and I'm the announcer for the toy commercial. So I'm in there doing that, and I'm looking through the glass, and the way the lighting was, all I could see was silhouettes. Mm -hmm. And so there's the silhouette of uh, the director and the engineer. And then I realize after a while that three more people have come in, and they're sitting on a couch in the back, but I can't see who they are. They're just silhouettes. And I right. work and I work and I work. And finally, Joe Dante says, okay, Neil, we got it. We're all set. Thank you very much. Uh, just leave the studio, go in the kitchen, and I'll send somebody in with your paperwork. I said, okay, thanks, Joe. Good to see you. And I go in there. And then I realized the three guys come out. They're the next people who are going to work. And it was uh, George Kennedy, mm -hmm. Bruce Dern, mm -hmm. and Ernest Borgnine. They wow. Had all been sitting on the couch watching me do this commercial. Oh, that's I, great. I said, I thank God I didn't know who they were. I'd have <laughs> I probably would have choked. Right. I mean, and, so, yeah. And you, you've been able to work with so many, like, so many, you know, legendary, you know, people in Hollywood. And one in particular is one whose movie I saw twice in the theaters, which was Quiz Show. And yeah. so you get to work with Robert Redford. Um, yeah, that was that, that like? was exciting. Well, that was, uh, <clears throat> you know, most of the time, 
when you do these things, the director doesn't necessarily show up. Usually they, they will send somebody. I've, I've worked for Steven Spielberg's productions on a number of occasions. Finally did meet him once at a social event, but he, he was never there when I did uh, what I did. He would right. send somebody else to supervise. But in this instance, I walked in and I stared through the porthole glass and said to nobody in particular, God, that looks like Robert Redford. And the woman said, yes, it is. Go in and introduce yourself. I said, well, what do I call him? Mr. Bob, call him Bob. I said, really? Yeah, everybody calls him Bob. I said, okay, and in I went. And there was a funny thing that happened. I actually worked three times for him. Really? It was a funny thing that happened. And I, I put it in the book and it just didn't work somehow and I took it out, but I'll, I'll, give, I'll tell you if you want. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, you do, though, remember the movie Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid? Very much so, yeah. Oh, yeah. And you remember the scene where they're trapped on the s side of a cliff? Yeah. And they have nowhere the to jump. go? Yeah, there's this yeah, raging river funny. below and the posse is, yeah. 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 I got I to say a, a dirty word, but otherwise uh, the bit doesn't work. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. The third I've, I've time that I... Worse. <laughs> the third time that I worked for Robert Redford, he, he said, well, we previewed the picture in San Diego and I made a number of notes. And one of the notes was, I would like this particular line done louder with more emphasis. So I said, okay, sure. No problem. Right. I'll roll the thing. Dum, dum, dum. Jump in, do it. Cut. He said, you know, uh, I'd like it even bigger than that. Bigger than that. Okay. All right. All right. Rewind. Rolling again. And I jump in. And the minute I start, I realize, no, I'm way over the top. This is much too big, but I'll finish. Maybe right. he'll like it. Who the hell knows? Yeah. I finish. Cut. I said, I got a feeling that was a little too much. He said, oh, God. Yeah, that was way over the top. Jeez, you sounded like you were at the bottom of a cliff screaming for help. I said, well, at least I didn't yell shit on the way down. <laughs> And that was one of the few times in my life when I had a comeback line. Most of the time I don't, but. Oh, that's great. His engineer laughed out loud. He kind of smiled. I, I have a feeling he heard a lot of jokes about that scene and was probably tired of hearing about it. But he was such a nice guy, so low key that you get to the point where you, you suddenly remember, I'm here with a major movie star and I forgot. Yeah. He's just another guy, you know, we're just working together. Right, right. Oh, that's great. <laughs> So, um, so, you know, for all the years that you've, you've been doing this and this is, you know, we're talking like, I mean, this was from, you know, quiz show was 1994 and a whole lot, you know, quite a few years have passed, you know, since then, how do you feel like the voiceover business as a whole? Like, how do you think it's changed along the way? Oh God. Uh, well, it's complete 180 from when I got in. As I said, when we started, uh, voiceover was one of the best kept secrets in show business. Uh, a relative handful of people were doing it. Mm -hmm. uh, there was a book written by a big time agent. Uh, I've forgotten the exact title I quoted in my book, uh, but it was like, here's what to do if you want to get into show business sort of thing. Yeah. And she covered everything, acting, commercials, blah, blah, blah. She did not do a chapter on voiceovers. She just did a few paragraphs in, in, in a particular chapter. Essentially, what she said is, forget about it. You'll never get in. Mm. It's a small group of people, highly elite, probably the best actors in the business. Yeah. 
and there's probably no chance you have of, of breaking in. And just because you did noon to three on K whatever in Bakersfield does not mean you're going to get into voiceovers. Right. And I'm, I read that luckily after I'd gotten in the business. If I'd read it before I got in the business, it might have discouraged me. But anyway, essentially you had these, these guys, mostly guys, mm-hmm. and uh, the buyers knew them all and loved them and used them over and over and over again because they were reliable. They could show up and deliver the goods in five takes or less. So why take a chance on a newbie like me when you could hire Lenny Weinrib? You knew he was going to nail it in five takes and that, you know. And so it was really hard to break in. You'd have to wait for one of those guys to be unavailable or on vacation or whatever. And well, right. man, all right, bring this kid in. We'll give him a shot. And then, well, he's not too bad. Eh, maybe we'll have him back sometime. You don't know. You just had to wait your turn to get in. It was really hard. Now there's none of that anymore. Everybody and his uh, cousin Steve think, thinks that they can do voiceovers. And, of course, now you've got the Internet. You can send... Uh, voice tracks in over the internet and uh, back in the back in the day you either had to be in Los Angeles or New York to work in voiceovers pretty much now you can be anywhere and there's thousands and thousands and thousands of people Uh, in the book I I mention a a casting person here in Los Angeles or people who do casting for voices here in Los Angeles and the lady there said she had 30,000 people in her computer Wow. Now, some of those are specialty acts, like you want a Swedish accent. Well, we got a guy who's really from Sweden, you know, this kind of thing. But the bulk of them are people like me who try to do it all. Mm-hmm. 30,000. And you're competing against that to try to get into one of her auditions where maybe they're only reading 25 people. Well, now your odds are 25 to one. Right. It's tough. It's tough. But it's 180 degrees different. Now there's a billion people in the business. Back then, you could almost name them. Yeah. There were that few. So, and, um, so where, can our, where can my listeners find you on social media? Ah, well, I'm on Facebook. Mm-hmm. And uh, I have a website if you want to hear demos of my work. And that's www.neilross.com. And then if you're interested in the book, I have a separate website for that. And that is www.neilbook.com. N-E-I-L-book.com. Or just put Neil Ross Vocal Recall into Google. It'll take you where you need. It's, uh, it's available on Amazon. It's available on uh, Audible. Yep. Uh, it's everywhere. So yeah. uh, the title, the full title is Vocal Recall, A Life in Radio and Voiceovers. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And so, um, so what, uh, what sort of parting advice would you have for someone who wants to, wants to get into this, into this business and is not really sure like, about how to, how to make their mark in it? Well, it's... Um, I, I talk about the three P's, and that's patience, persistence, and practice. Mm. And you really don't have a lot of control over the luck that may come your way. But what you want to do is when that luck comes along, be ready to take advantage of it. The one thing they cannot stop you from doing is practicing. 
like yeah. the old joke of the guy that stops the lady in New York and says, can you tell me how to get to Carnegie Hall? She says, practice, darling, practice. <laughs> uh, you know, you can pick up a, a relatively inexpensive audio setup. You can practice at home. How do you do that? Oh, if you want to try to do commercials, you can find wonderful commercial copy and magazine ads and some newspaper ads. Mm -hmm. uh, if you want to do animation, maybe record a show that you like and write the lines of a particular character out and then think, what would you do if they called you in and they said, we've decided to change the voice of this character. We're getting rid of the other actor. We want something different. What, what, would, what have you got for this character? Try to invent it uh, just as an exercise. Try to, do a, try to invent a new way of, for Bart Simpson to sound. This is not saying you're ever going to get that job. It's just right. an exercise. It's a practice. Practice any way you can. If there's some sort of uh, a th little theater, wherever you are, uh, run down an audition and, and see if you can get a part in a play. Any kind of performance, it all helps. Mm -hmm. You know, I had to get rid of my phony radio read, but a lot of things I, that I learned in radio, I continue to use in voiceover. I'm a great sight reader. You hand me a piece of copy, give me just a minute or two to look at it, and I can get through it without any mistakes. That's years of these rip and read newscasts that I talked about and reading live commercial copy on the air. Uh, it all feeds on itself. So you can always be practicing, always getting ready so that when the breaks do come your way, you don't squander them. I mean, there's nothing sadder than someone who gets a shot and isn't ready. Yeah, that's such a shame, such a waste. Don't let that happen to you. And you got to be persistent and you got to be patient. It's going to take time. Mm -hmm. It took me five years from the time I got to L.A. to where I could say, I think I sort of am in this business now. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I couldn't think of a better possible way to uh, close out this episode by just reminding everyone exactly what Neil had just said. You cannot, no one can stop you from practicing. No one can stop you from improving yourself. No one can stop you from getting ready for when that moment finally comes. If that, if that moment ever comes, whenever it comes, whatever the case, as long as you are ready to answer the call, then you, you, then the world is open to you. And I hope that all of you who are listening enjoyed this conversation as a fraction as much as I did. Like, like I said at the very beginning, um, Neil, uh, Neil is, is someone that I look up to um, quite a bit. Um, I highly recommend reading Vocal Recall. It will be an inspiring and entertaining listen, um, whether you wanna get it on Audible or audio or um, Kindle, whatever the case, just get your hands on it and allow his words to really, you know, really push you forward. Just like he said right here, no one can stop you from practicing. No one can stop you from improving. No one can stop you from going on your own Excelsior journey. So for Neil Ross, this is George Soroy saying to all of you, ever upward. And I will see you next week.